Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, strategies, and habits to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a physician coach help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, leadership challenges, or just feeling stuck. If you are looking to recalibrate your career, learn more at our website, roborman.com, where you can set up a free coaching discovery session with me to get clarity on your challenges and goals and see if one-on-one coaching is something you'd like to pursue. This episode, today's episode is stolen or borrowed. I like that better. (laughs) I borrowed better than stolen. The backstory is that I was interviewed on another podcast. And when I was listening to it after it was published, there were some stories and descriptions of mindset and approaches that you might find interesting or useful. I asked the host of that show if I could put this clip on stimulus and alas, here it is. And this isn't an episode where there's really a directed point. It's more of a conversation where we bring up a lot of stuff within it. And a little bit of backstory. Ben Peary is an emergency doc who has a show called The Grit. There's actually about 70 podcasts called The Grit. His happens to be called The Grit with Ben Peary. And at its core, Ben's show is about mental health. He talks to physicians, nurses, paramedics, police, military, really anyone who operates on the front lines. It's a long form interview with the goal of healing through talking about what we see and feel and experience and also the aftermath and the afterwards. I encourage you to check out Ben's show, which I will link to in the show notes because it's really a unique and thoughtful take on what it takes to do this kind of work and what this kind of work itself can do to you. Ben and I worked together for many years in a rural or semi-rural ED, and we ran countless resuscitations together. Countless, because I lost count. And one thing I noticed working all those years with Ben is what I can only describe as a true professional's mindset. I actually refer to it as the warrior mindset in the show you're about to hear. But when I piece it together, I was listening about it. I've been thinking about it. It's really how to carry yourself like a pro. And the elements of this, or some of the elements, are humility, equanimity, honesty with others and yourself. Treat everyone with respect, top to bottom. There is a pact between you and the patient that you're going to do your best, and a pact with yourself that you're going to do your best to take care of you. And here's probably the warrior part of it. When you're in the thick of it, as we've discussed on this show many times, you lock into the attitude that you're going to get it done. It may be hard, there may not be a clear path between A and B or how this is going to happen, but you're going to do it. There is no what if, there's just what's next. So what what do you call all of that stuff combined? You know, you put it all together, what comes out of the oven? I don't know the best word, so I'm calling it the professional. And, you know, thinking about it, we in medicine really haven't qualified the foundations of what it means to be a true professional in medicine, or at least emergency medicine. Maybe this is it. Maybe those are the qualities, or at least some of them. All right, so just so you know, profanity warning, in case you're listening with your young children or those who don't favor such a thing. So here we go. Lots of stories, mindset, wins, losses, conversation 
with Dr. Ben Peary. Can I share a story with the... Please. Is, is that, so as you're talking, I'm remembering one case. This was um, this was just one of many critical resuscitations that we had. And, and, and listeners, as far as just, just to explain the environment where we work, this was a semi-rural hospital in a town of about 10,000 and but a massive catchment area and it was the only trauma center it was a level three trauma center but it didn't matter because you got every, it's you know level level three is ridiculous in that situation because it doesn't matter what the trauma is it's coming to you i can remember one particular case where i was starting my day shift and you were finishing a night shift and we got a call that there was a shootout this was in a canyon nearby uh, our hospital between a perpetrator, I guess you'd say, who was sitting in a car and then two uh, police officers. So I think the perpetrator from seat in the car shot one of the officers. The perpetrator was then shot dead. And one of the officer was coming in shot and actively bleeding. So the ambulance was, I, I think, about 10 minutes out when we got the call. And report was multiple areas of bullet impact, bleeding from the groin, amongst other issues. And then they came in, and I, actually, I'm looking at my, I've got hair on end just <laughs> thinking about this story. I don't know about you, but my drill is bumping. So they came in, and it, it was interesting that, I, I mean, th this might sound bad to say, like every patient you think like they're super important, but I felt like this was really important. I don't know, like that the stakes were somehow so much higher that all human life is precious, but this just felt this extra level of not only preciousness and res and responsibility. Like here was someone serving the community and was killed and or, or shot in the gravely injured. In, yeah, in the in the line gravely. Oh my god, gravely injured. So ambulance comes in. Patients on the gurney, and you just stayed. You just stayed and helped me with the recess, and it was which was helpful because there were bullet wounds all over, all over, and the officer had indeed been shot in the femoral artery. And you, I remember you were taking care of some of the orthopedic injuries. There were you know multiple extremity uh, gunshots, and making sure that the bleeding was okay there. And the entrance wound was this deep, angular wound. It wasn't straight in. And we didn't have any combat gauze. We didn't have any procoagulants. So, I, you know, putting pressure on this thing externally, it's not stopping. It's just, it, he's dying. He's bleeding out. You know, massive transfusion. The, I don't think our blood had arrived or what, but it's bad. So I wrapped my finger in some gauze and I stuck it to my knuckle, to the knuckle on my hand in the hole. Just thought, right, that's what you do. It's, uh, I mean, I guess I could have packed it and maybe that would have helped, but this was, this just needed finger on the vessel. And so now it's you and me <laughs> this wound. I've got my finger like deep in, in this guy's groin. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I hope that one of our surgeons in this tiny little hospital would be willing to fix this thing. <laughs> Right, because we fly yeah. most like most vascular injury gets flown out, and I remember I, I was looking up at you. This is going on, and it felt so real, sur surreal, surreal. Like we're we're in it, so real and surreal. Like we're in a dream. 
I honestly, Ben, I have never felt such fear that the patient was going to die. Patients have, you know, they died. And that was, you know, sometimes despite your best efforts, sometimes maybe you didn't make the right move, but I never had felt that degree of fear. And I could see, I looked at you and I could see you were scared. Then I looked at him and I could see that he was scared. And eventually we, we, we did go to the OR with my finger still in there. And they, you know, we went to the OR, they prepped. I, I don't know if you saw this, but I was on the gurney and they prepped around me. Would you go into the OR with us? Yeah. Cause I think you, I, I think you had your finger in, in that guy's wound for about 90 minutes. Uh, it was oh a long God. time. Yeah. It wasn't, we're not talking 10 minutes. Yeah, it was a right. long time. You went to radiology like that. I, I just remember, right? Didn't we do some? Uh, yeah, the CT is his his pelvis. I I, I just I, <laughs> you were on you were on that guy literally, putting because the wound actually went it it was diagonal. It wasn't a straight in line shot. So it where the entrance was, the actual vessel was injured. Like you said, a full knuckle finger length away. That's why you had to reach in so far to to. to compress that vessel. Yeah, that's good. And I got really long fingers too, l l luckily. Good Lord, man. Yeah, no uh, kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> and um, so, yes, they prepped him in the OR and, uh, you know, a, like around my finger. And it was, boy, that moment of taking the finger off and the the surgeon, one of our quieter surgeons who was like, right, he was right behind me. And he he said, okay, you can take your finger out. That, that almost felt like free fall. Like just like, whoa. Here it comes. Um, I think about that as this memorable case. And we were talking in the beginning, the reason, reason I bring it up is you said a couple of things in the, the preamble of this podcast is that, you know, we've been each other's wingman for so many resuscitations. And I, actually, as, as I calculate it, at, you know, more than anyone else in my career. And one thing I always admired was your mindset. It was kind of like this warrior mindset, not aggressive. It was more of... Um, an analytical, kind, thoughtful mindset, but also frosty, cool, and getting it done. You used to say that when you, I don't know if you remember that when you said, all right, stay frosty. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's something that you intentionally do, but what's going on in your brain or what was going on with your brain with all that? What is your warrior mindset? That's a good question. I, um, it probably started where both of us trained. There's an opportunity to fall down into a puddle of goo, you know, when you're first in training and you, you realize pretty quickly that you can't, it's not acceptable. I remember as a medical student breaking a suture twice, uh, back to back on a pediatric chest case with one of the surgeons at children's after the first one, he calmly handed me another suture. And after the second one, tensioning it too much, he put his instruments down. He looked at me and he said, you have to be fucking disciplined. And it was quiet and he wasn't screaming, but it sunk in that idea of like, you have to not break a suture. You can't tell me that this suture is very delicate or whatever, whatever excuse you think you're going to have, you have to tie the knot, period. So pick up the next one and tie it. And I think there's a lot of circumstances like that, that you have to perform and there's no point in panicking about it and recognizing that you have to move your your brain into a different mode of like you have to do it so how am i going to get this done is really the question not of whether you can do it because you have to 
you, you and I know there's just certain elements in our careers. You can't miss an airway, period. It's just one of those career defining moments. I don't know. I remember as a com like commercial fishing when I was in my 20s, same thing. Like there are just things you just have to do. And if you don't, someone's going to die or you're going to make a huge, huge mistake with massive risks and costs. So I don't know. Oh, man. As you're talking about where that warrior mindset comes from, it makes me think of uh, extreme ownership. Have you ever, ever read that book? Yes. Yeah. That's what you're taking on. And I think that's what that surgeon was trying to transmit to you is that extreme ownership. If someone doesn't do what you ask them to do, it's because you did not explain it clearly enough and ensure that they understood. If you are going to go from point A to point B, you are going to get from point A to point B and you're, you're going to do it as, as you were saying. I own this. I'm not deflecting. I'm not blaming. I'm making it happen. Yes. People also, I think, have an expectation as you as, a, as their care provider, as emergency room provider, that that is a covenant between you yeah. and the patient. Yeah. And that is sacred ground in my mind. It's inviable. I'm not saying that we don't make mistakes because I've certainly made colossal mistakes, but there are also times where you really are expected to link together those steps in whatever way it's going to be. And the nurses are watching too. They like you, you and I have never been people that get agitated or yell or, or, you know, it doesn't help anything. Yeah. If people want to see if you can stay calm and you do a great job of it too, where you just stay calm and it, it just instantly calms the room. And you and I, we've had mentors do that in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably standing on the shoulders of giants, people that were masters of this. And they taught this to me early on, you know, like Gene Moore, right? Did you ever see Gene Moore lose his mind? Never, very rarely. He was always kind and calm and, you know. Oh my God. We talk about Gene Moore. So <laughs> this is, uh, we both trained at uh, Denver General, Denver Health Medical Center. We were just a little bit apart, so we didn't overlap. But I remember, so Gene Moore was this, he was this gruff trauma surgeon. He had this gruff exterior, but he was always talk like this at this same tone and had this gravelly voice. And so I had a patient with a uh, chest injury and 2,000 pounds of bricks had fallen on his chest. And Gene Moore walks in <laughs> and we're doing this. I mean, it's like, you know, big time recess. He comes in, we're just starting to recess and he says, what happened? And I was the third or fourth year on the case. I said, well, this guy had a ton of bricks fall on him. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, what do you mean? I said, oh, literally 2,000 pounds of bricks. <laughs> And I have to, you know, listeners, if you're not in the medical field, you're going to think we're absolutely horrible people, but he's just like, <laughs> that's pretty funny. All right, let's go crack this guy's chest. Oh my God. He would do that all the time. He'd say like, ah, we're just going to go stick up. We're going to go throw a rag up in his fucking chest. Let's go. You know, but to have someone take a situation that looks impossible and make it seem like it just needs just a few rags thrown up in the chest, which to him is exactly the motion, the steps that are needed but think about the complexity of splitting open the chest it, you know obviously he was downplaying what he was about to do but uh it made it seem like that the outcome was could only be good you know and yeah, that inspired right. everybody you know it wasn't like something impossible when i got out of residency i'm not sure about you but i thought that i was probably the greatest intubator that had ever lived in fact they probably modeled airway courses on my <laughs> technique. <laughs> that was an unfortunate 
I think, part of our training, to be honest. Because back then it was, we never call for help because we, you know, anesthesia in the emergency department, are you crazy? Blasphemy. They're just going to screw things up. It's like, we handle everything. It's like, all right, so what's the message is that we handle everything and we don't need help, which, you know, which is total BS. But I got out, I had two patients die. They were in the process of dying, but it was certainly accelerated because I could not get their airways. One was probably a month into attending hood, probably a 500 pound patient who came in with chest pain. And this was before we had any fiber optic stuff or Clydescopes or any of that. It came in with, I thought what I guess was chest pain and they were sweaty and they were sitting on a chair and just like sweating. And I was working a night shift, a night shift all by myself as a wow. first, first month attending. And this 500-pound this patient was sitting there screaming, help me, I'm going to die. And so I walk in there. I said, okay, can you get up on the stretcher? So I, I can examine you and get an EKG and all this. I can't move. And so it went on like this for hours. And I didn't know what to do. I would have approached it very differently two months in when I had a little more experience, but I was just so on my own. And eventually the patient lost consciousness. Oh my God. We were able to have everyone in the ER come in and pick them up and put them on the stretcher. And I needed to intubate them. And I tried everything. I took every maneuver, every blade, this and that. I didn't call for help. I gave uh, I gave the patient succinylcholine a couple of times to reparalyze them. I mean, it was just horrible. The medicine was just was barbaric and nearly incompetent, and I was just doing a bad job. I wasn't doing a bad job. What I like my technique. It was just, it was a very hard. It was a- anterior, a lot of mm-hmm. lot of soft tissue, but as my mindset right? I don't need help. I don't need anybody's help. I got this. I totally need help. And then uh, the, the day shift guy came on and said, hey, I need, <laughs> I'm not getting this. He came on and then he uh. was eventually able to get it. And that patient eventually died and they were having a STEMI because we couldn't get EKG leads on the patient. Oh my God. It, because they were so sweaty, like you couldn't even hold them on. So eventually after getting them intubated and all this, we got the, it's like, oh my gosh, it, it's a STEMI. And you know, it was probably a month later that they they died. And then not too long after that, and this is, uh, I don't actually, I don't even know if, uh, if my wife knows this case, I've never really talked about this one is I was called up to the ICU for a patient who w- was getting some sort of a cancer treatment. And they're like, Oh, th- this patient is, is peri arrest and they need an airway. They were skinny, looked totally fine. And this was again, before we had any of the Oh, all the tools, yeah. All the yeah. goodies that we have now. The whole crowd is there. It's like, I just couldn't see anything. I couldn't pass anything. It was, uh, I didn't train with a bougie. So this is before I'd even thought of that kind of thing. And I couldn't get the airway. And, you know, we're trying to back, back the patient. And then they arrested. Uh-huh. And then they died. And I was like, oh, I can crike. And I, I was thinking, okay, my next step is crike. They're like, nope, we're done. Like, whoa. Wow. When you're talking about a pact and you're talking about what do you do in this position, those situations were, they were profoundly traumatic. And I feel, still feel bad that these people died, but they, they stick with me. 
how I approach those situations in the aftermath definitely set the trajectory of who I became as a physician in that I came out of residency thinking, I, I am fully baked. Not only that, I made me, I, <laughs> I, am, yep. I am fully created and actualized. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I am just beginning to learn. I need to reset and understand that I, I know nothing. I would get these flyers for airway courses, like as, as you did, you know, like the airway, airway course. I was like, who needs airway course? What kind of idiot needs to take an airway course? And you learned it in residency. The answer was clearly me. <laughs> and so, you know, like to have that different mindset of a structured algorithm and to take these cases that were just profoundly, profoundly traumatic, think, all right, what is the next step? And what's the story I'm telling myself, what am I anchoring to here? I didn't have this dialogue to describe it until recently when I became a physician coach and started working with docs and then speaking to experts and learning about these things. But going back, I first needed to ask myself, what is the story I'm telling me about myself? That's the first question. What can I anchor to? And if I'm anchoring to, I'm infallible, I must be perfect then I'm going to fail and no trauma will be worked through. So that was the first question is like, what am I anchoring to? And I did come out of residency with that mindset of bad attitude because that was supported and like, oh, you're the chief resident and you got this job. And it's like the job that only like the real badasses get. It's like, oh, so clearly I'm a badass. And like this projected ego of being the badass was so crippling. And so like, all right, this needs a reset because I can't, I can't sustain living like this as a, just a human being. The story I then had to create de novo at that point was, well, I am a student. I am a student first and always a student. And my default is I either don't know it or I don't know enough. And I can always learn more. Teach me. Everyone, everything has, has something to teach, and I can always learn more about this thing. And so that shift from certainty, and obviously it was insecurity, let's be honest. It wasn't actual certainty. It was insecurity saying like, oh, I am a badass, because it was a total feeling of imposter. Once I switched from saying like, ah, I have to portray an air of expertise at all times to... I am a student at all times, and I am compassionate with my patients. That gave me freedom to say, okay, I'm imperfect. I need to learn here. How am I going to move on? You know, you're talking about this, the pact or the agreement that you have with patients. What's the pact I have with these patients who died? It's a little bit like <clears throat> you mentioned in one of your recent stimulus podcasts about what letter type of letter would you write yourself or would you, what would you say, you know, would, it, it's predicated on the idea of forgiveness, right? Of like yeah. the decision you're making at the time, the things you're doing at the time are you have to acknowledge that the, at the time you were doing them, you were doing your absolute yes. fucking best. And yeah. that's got to be adequate in some levels. It's regardless of the outcome, because you can only do your best and that's it you know i mean you have to we're not superhuman that be that's that's called that's hubris that's arrogance that's insanity i was thinking about the, your, your case by definition a 500 pound patient is already without 
even coming into the hospital, the worst airway of anyone's life. It just is. By I mean, there may be some exceptions, but it's all that adipose tissue. The anatomy is distorted. They're in they're in extremis. The likelihood they're going to have a you know and have a cardiac arrest when you try to paralyze them in some fashion. I mean, all everything you're standing under a rock cliff that's that's about to dump all the rocks on you, and <laughs> yeah. and so if you don't see that that blinking GPS spot and recognize the danger for what it is. People use all kinds of analogies. You're behind the ape, all those kinds of things, but you are, it's already a bad situation. And maybe even starting that at that point to say, whoa, we're in a bad spot already. It would allow you to perhaps forgive yourself for a situation that starts in a bad an unlikely to survive scenario. And if they, they, if they don't, it um, there's already a little forgiveness built in. Not to say that you don't expect yourself to that person to live, but you know they're in trouble. As opposed to being blind and blithe about it, you know, oh, I can do anything, you know, oh, sure, I'm Doctor So and So. Walk in, you should walk in with the the most severe pucker factor of your life. You're pooping out diamonds um, <laughs> because your <laughs> rectal tone is so high. But that takes years. That takes experience beyond just being a resident. But it's still you still have to forgive yourself. You know, I I I still struggle with that the letter to self in the sense that it still has to be okay. And I think that's where people vary. I've noticed um, some people just take that shit hard. I put myself in that category. Some people they they're like, this is the job. I came in. This is an emergency. It mm-hmm. didn't happen. That five hundred pound patient died. That's to be expected. And they they have a they have a totally different view of things. They 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 know what their limits are. They're like, I can only do so much. This patient is probably headed towards a bad outcome, and I just happen to be you know in the room where it happened. So, and that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching or get the complete show notes for this or any other podcast episode, visit our website roborman.com. And thanks again for those of you supporting production of this show through Patreon. If you'd like to be a stimulus Patreon, but are yet to be, there's a link right there in the show notes for you to tapity tap and holy smokes, you too can be a Patreon. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.